the BKA, the German Federal Police in Wiesbaden. For six years, the agency is run by a man integral to its inception, Paul Dickopf. A top civil servant with a seemingly clean record, he claims he opposed the Nazis. Until 1971, during Willy Brandt's time as Chancellor, he is the top criminologist in West Germany. Anyone who criticized him or posed any kind of threat to him was never allowed to forget it. He held a grudge and destroyed such people. Dickhoff doesn't only forge a career for himself in West Germany. In 1968, he becomes head of Interpol. It's now his job to fight crime on an international scale. When Dickhoff left, Genscher, who was interior minister at the time, held him up as an example to police all over Germany. After Dickhoff's death in 1973, staff researching files to compile his obituary make an astonishing find. They turn up documents outing Dickhoff as a staunch Nazi. His lifelong lie finally comes to light. Dickhoff was not only a member of the SS and a Nazi spy. Shortly before the end of the war, he switched sides to start working as an agent for the Americans. Numerous CIA documents give an insight into the work of Caravel, which was Dickhoff's CIA codename. The highest ranking member of the German police sold confidential information from the Bonn government. Chancellor Willy Brandt and his Ostpolitik was of particular interest to the Americans, and Dickhoff readily provided the information. As did many other Nazis during the Cold War. They became willing helpers, spies, because American intelligence services used their pasts to blackmail them. The Americans were never very bothered if the people they needed had close ties to mass murderers or extremists or terrorists. The ends justified the means. American intelligence services faced a new enemy, communism. The US enlisted former Nazis as spies. There was no attempt to punish them for their war crimes. As the Cold War grew hot, these Nazi collaborators became pawns of Western intelligence services for a variety of both psychological warfare type missions, covert operations, and this, this type of thing. Only now are Secret Service files from the Cold War accessible, and they contain documents about Nazis who became willing CIA spies. Another case that has recently surfaced is that of Eugen Steimler, a die-hard Nazi who led firing squads in the Soviet Union. 
Steimler was thought to be among those killed when a Lufthansa plane crashed near Nuremberg on the 20th of April, 1945. Eyewitnesses saw the burning plane in the sky, and the crash site is still visible in the Pisenkofen forest today. At the time, locals collected up everything they found around the wreckage. One item recovered was a briefcase containing documents and IDs. Among them was one belonging to Steimler. The briefcase was taken to the local Nazi commander's office. A few days later, US troops marched into the area and the briefcase was seized by members of the Army's Secret Service. The Americans were looking for Nazis they could use for their own purposes and every personal detail helped them in their search. They suspected Steimler was still alive. CIA documents listing the contents of the briefcase make it possible to reconstruct what really happened. The Lufthansa plane takes off from Tempelhof on April the 20th, 1945, while the battle for Berlin is raging. Those on board know it's only a matter of time before the Russians and the Western Allies take power. There are more than 20 passengers on the Condor, among them a number of men in leather overcoats. The captain takes off under the cover of darkness. The planned destination is Spain, with a fuel stop in Munich. But the weather is bad. I can still remember my father telling us over breakfast about a low-flying plane that had been making such a racket. A friend lives very near to here, and that evening a burning plane flew over her roof. Panic-stricken, her mother grabbed hold of both the children and threw them and herself to the ground. She said since the father had died in the war, the three of them should die together. The plane crashes in a forest with no survivors. Were there high-ranking Nazis on board the Condor trying to get to Spain? American intelligence flies the briefcase and the documents to the US. The agents in Washington know the end of the war will herald a new chapter in the confrontation of the superpowers. And in order to secure an advantage, they will recruit former top Nazis. They strike it lucky. One man in the files is of particular interest to the Americans, SS Standartenführer Steimler. Their research tells them he was responsible for mass murders in Russia. The agents suspect he is still alive, as a number of witnesses report having seen him after the crash. Locals near the crash site are questioned again. As a war criminal, Steimler is valuable to the Americans.
it was impossible to systematically uh, recruit intelligence agents without systematically recruiting war criminals. Those things went together. They launch a manhunt across Germany for Eugen Steimler, who fled to his home near the Black Forest. The neck closes, and in autumn 1945, the former SS intelligence officer turns himself in for interrogation. He knows his only chance is to tell the truth. A defector who has something to hide, murders for example, can be blackmailed and is therefore malleable in the hands of his new bosses. Steinler collaborates. His testimony and the documents from the briefcase help the Americans to uncover an entire network of German spies in Spain. It consists of dozens of ex-Nazis who, following the collapse of the Third Reich, are already working on their next crazy idea, the Fourth Reich, which translates to worldwide fascism. The Americans observe them and recruit the Spanish players to work on their behalf. Following his interrogation, Steimler is sentenced to death by hanging, but is then surprisingly pardoned. Did the Americans enlist him and influence the verdict? There is no proof, as important files are missing from the US interrogation center in Oberursel. Nazis like Dick Kopf and Steimler become agents, but the US intelligence services want more than just spies. They want Nazi treasures. Right up until the war was over, the Allies believed the Nazis had an Alpine redoubt. Even now, the myth of missing Nazi gold still lures treasure hunters to the area. But do these treasures really exist? Towards the end of the war, German industry made plans to secure its capital in the event of defeat. This was very dangerous to have such discussions. But nevertheless, the alternative of losing everything when Hitler was finally died, however that exactly happened, was even more dangerous. So they went ahead with this, and they started to draw up plans, some of which still exist, on how they would attempt to reconstitute Germany after Hitler left. These activities were no secret to the Allied intelligence services. They launch a large-scale international surveillance operation, codenamed Safe Haven. Safe Haven was the name of a U.S. government program whose task it was to track and seize 
assets that the Nazis had seized, had looted from Europe, and were attempting to distribute around the world in order to, for use after 1945. The Americans knew such plans had been hatched by industry, and even in the Reich Chancery. They were also aware of a network of foreign companies set up to keep funds safe. In Monaco in particular, numerous shell corporations had access to millions. One company was a broadcaster, on whose board sat the then unknown Kurt Georg Kiesinger. He would eventually become Chancellor of West Germany. The fact that he worked for the foreign and propaganda ministries during the Third Reich didn't adversely affect his career. Allied agents submitted detailed reports about financial transfers. Sometimes they were even able to smuggle people into meetings. This espionage operation was led by Alan Dulles, then a US agent in Switzerland, who later rose to be head of the CIA. He knew how to use his knowledge of Nazis' financial doings to benefit his career in Washington. When a bomb attack destroys the Berlin Rice Bank in March 1945, gold and currency reserves are no longer secure. It's time to put the plan into action. Quickly and thoroughly, everything is meticulously noted and checked as 360 tons of gold and 300 tons of silver and banknotes are loaded up and taken away. Documents relating to the Reichsbank gold remain undiscovered in the German Central Bank for more than 60 years, when Karl Bernd Esser finally finds them. All the gold that was in the Reichsbank was moved to Merkers or to certain depots in Bavaria. Now the Americans see their chance. Thanks to Operation Safe Haven, they know exactly where the gold is stored. They arrive in the Soviet occupation zone at the Merkur salt mine in the eastern state of Thuringia before the Soviets themselves. They declare the rice bank gold to be Nazi loot and take it with them. They also seize other treasures they find there, including Italian gold reserves and gold from the National Bank for Bohemia and Moravia. Were the hiding places in the Alps also cleared out long ago? You definitely won't find any gold in Bavaria today. There was a settlement document stating how much gold the Reichsbank deposited in the different depots. These depots were all found largely by the Americans, who even went across into the Soviet zone to Merkas and quickly emptied the main depot there. Karl Bernd Esser says it was an act of theft because it essentially means the Germans twice repaid their Marshall Plan loan, once with the Reichsbank gold and once in Deutschmarks.
The Marshall Plan was a successful American invention of how to trick friends without them realizing it. If I take a thousand euros from you and you don't notice, and then I say, I'll lend you a thousand euros and you pay it back with a bit of interest. You'd think, what a nice gesture. But in reality, I took a thousand euros from you already. You just didn't notice. The US intelligence services don't only use their knowledge and their treasures in Germany, but also recruit Italian fascists during the Cold War. The idea is that they will fight communism on America's behalf. Starting in the 1960s, a series of attacks in Italy claim hundreds of lives. The violence is initially blamed on left-wingers, but it's now known to have been the work of right-wing radicals. Stefano della Chiaia is head of the New Right Party. He is repeatedly accused of terrorist activity, but is never convicted. Our political position was very simple and quite clear. It was based on an historical experience for which we had great respect, and that was fascism. We tried to apply basic fascist values to the reality surrounding us. In 1970, the fascist revolutionaries and their backers want to stage a coup in Italy and stamp out the left-wing parties. They discussed their plans with the CIA. We know the CIA was informed about these plans. On December the 7th, Della Chiaia's supporters, the far-right Avanguardia Nazionale and parts of the military, set their plan in motion. Their first targets are the state broadcaster and government buildings. The revolutionaries around Stefano Della Chiaia believe they are pulling the strings. But the attempted coup is actually being driven from elsewhere. Although Della Chiaia still proudly claims responsibility. I was responsible for the coup, morally and politically, even if I wasn't in Italy at the time. The Comandante had prepared a perfect plan, which would have triggered a chain of command, starting at the Ministry of Defence. Everything was prepared and ready. And had the plan been activated, military units would have been mobilised and would have taken control of every strategic site in the country. The fight against the left wing has a long history in Italy and the US intelligence services have been involved from the very beginning. Its influence begins with the invasion of Sicily, when Allied soldiers fight and beat the Axis powers. But some Italian forces don't give up and continue to fight on the side of the Germans until 1945. One unit in particular is feared, the Decima Flotilla Mass, the world's first frogman commando. The Allies both fear and admire their daring operations. The leader of the unit is Valerio Borghese, the Black Prince. The Decima Mass of Prince Borghese was probably the best trained and most highly motivated unit in the entire fascist republic. It takes another two years before World War II is won in Italy. 
And when the Americans finally march into Rome, they are welcomed as liberators. Even by the Pope, who shares the US fear of a shift to the left in Italy. Because the communists are gaining in popularity. The aim of the Americans was to keep the communists out of the government, to keep them away from power. CIA agent James Jesus Angleton starts preparing a coup in the event that the communists win the Italian elections. Angleton had excellent connections in Italy. He spoke Italian, even with the Vatican, which back then, perhaps even now, has the most efficient intelligence service in the world. Angleton and Borghese became good friends. Borghese came from the fascist movement and founded the Fronte Nazionale as a way of bundling the different right-wing movements. It was all as a means of preventing a shift to the left, because the left parties were gaining strength in Italy. The communists are the arch-enemies of Borghese, who almost killed him at the end of the war. To act against the communists, the CIA enlists Borghese. Angleton succeeded in convincing the rest of the U.S. government that the elections of 1947-1948 in Italy would lead to a communist government in Italy, and so that therefore the Americans should sink millions of dollars into disrupting these elections and disrupting particularly the left-wing candidates in these elections. Operation Safe Haven pays off. The Americans used seized Nazi loot to finance Angleton's activities against Italy's communists. The seized riches will never be returned to the victims or their relatives. The money was money frequently that had been looted from Europe's Jews. Why? The Exchange Stabilization Fund was set up early during World War II to seize Nazi assets in international trade. It was part of the blockade of, of Germany. Angleton sets up a partisan army. This rarely seen footage shows training. Many of the partisans are battle-tested fascists from Borghese's frogmen. Gladio, as the unit is called, is under the exclusive command of the CIA. In the event that Italy democratically voted to become socialist, there would be stay-behind networks, underground elements that were armed and paid and ideologically prepared to attempt to overturn that democratically elected government. But Gladio is called off because the communists lose the first post-war elections. The mood is tense as the Soviets are forced to accept that Italy now belongs to the US sphere of control. And any hopes of a third way are dashed by Yalta, 
Yalta meant the victors, or better said, Russia, Great Britain and the US, signed a treaty in which they divided the world into future areas of influence and shared it out amongst themselves. Most specifically, they divided up Europe. The treaty remained unchanged until the collapse of the Soviet Union, until the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 80s. Yalta puts Italy under US influence. It's clear that in matters relating to their political and strategic interests, the Americans will do what they see fit. And that they will not create space between the blocs for a third power. In the post-Yalta world, in which the borders of the different blocs were carefully adhered to, the respective hegemonic powers crushed any uprising. That went for Hungary in 1956, and even more so for Berlin in 1953, and it went for every other revolt. And terrorism in Italy and Germany really only served one purpose, which was to stabilize the political status quo as did the 1978 murder of Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro. He was kidnapped and shot by the Red Brigades. But numerous agents and intelligence services were also involved in the killing. Many Italians believe Moro was murdered because he wanted a third way. Other powers were also involved in the 1970 attempted coup. Borghese and Della Chiaia were just puppets. We know of a telephone call with Borghese that took place between 1 and 2 in the morning, and then the coup was stopped. We also know that this call was with a high-ranking politician. In a written statement he made before his death, Borghese claimed that one of Andriotti's confidants, Bernabé, had called him and that he was acting on the instructions of Andriotti, who was the American's puppet at the time. Andreotti in quella situazione era garante degli americani. The ones really pulling the strings are high-ranking Italians. Right-wing politician Giulio Andreotti, who was later prime minister seven times, and Licio Gelli, head of the P2 Freemasons Lodge and American agent. They started to spread all kinds of lies. We're talking now about Gelli, who blew off the coup. We're talking about Andriotti, who backed him, and who's still withholding important facts. For example, that his friend, the public prosecutor at the coup, the trial of Borghese, who was also Andriotti's puppet, requested 28 years in prison for me and my comrades. You have to be careful of friends like that. During the attempted coup, the US military flexed its muscles. Shortly beforehand, the 6th US fleet was allegedly put on a state of alert. Hoping to impress the CIA, Gelli and Andriotti presented themselves to the Americans as influential figures capable of both mobilizing and calling off military coups. Fascists such as Borghese and Della Chiaie have to go underground, and the US intelligence services choose South America as the most suitable place. There, in their search for power, the fascists join forces with dictators. 
Clearly, we wanted to implement our ideology and our conviction there, and our fight for fascism fell on more fertile ground in Latin America than elsewhere. Many parties in Latin America had fascist or national socialist roots. But Chile is different. In 1971, socialist Salvador Allende is elected to power. His Marxist politics make him enemies and many enthusiastic followers. This was perceived by the United States as a tremendous threat because if peaceful revolution uh, were to take hold, that would greatly weaken the, the United States' ideological hold on, on South America. Under the instructions of US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, the CIA becomes active in Chile. The staunch anti-communist is not content to bank on Allende losing the next elections. In September 1973, General Pinochet, supported by Italian fascists, stages a military coup. The Americans leave them to it. The two sides, like Pinochet, want to wipe out communism. We were in contact with Chilean comrades before the coup in Chile. In 1974, Commandante Borghese and I were in Santiago, where we met President Pinochet and started working closely together. When we arrived in Chile, we were greeted by President Pinochet. In 1975, the fascists gather in Madrid to attend the funeral of a mutual and like-minded friend, Spanish dictator Francisco Franco. It's here that the cooperation between Italian fascists and the Chilean intelligence service, DINA, is sealed. The ringleader is none other than Stefano della Chiaia. But again, his involvement in the ensuing crimes is never proven. The first meeting of collaborators but it's not the last. Pinochet himself meets with these terrorists who have just pulled off this assassination. And um, Manuel Contreras is there and everybody is, is having a kind of right-wing love fest. They then, Stefano de la Chiaie, are given permission, apparently at that meeting, that they can set up headquarters in Chile. So the Italians then begin to collaborate with Dina. There follows a series of murders. Among the targets is Allende's former foreign minister, Orlando Letelier, in Washington. But terrorism on home turf is too much for the US, which reigns Pinochet in. They talk about the weakness of the United States in its ability to defeat the communist menace. Uh, and the desire of the military governments in Latin America to take the leadership uh, internationally to defeat the communist movement worldwide. It's, it's, uh, the scope of this is mind-blowing. They, they actually referred to it as World War III. Pinochet's junta prepares for this war. Dazu gehörte der Wunsch, 
It included the wish to own toxic gases, the production of biological weapons, and prisoners in Chile were killed during trials, and the production of toxic gases, sarin and mustard gas. The research laboratory for inhuman experiments is located at Colonia Dignidad. The hamlet goes from strange to sinister. Following the military coup of 1973, Colonia Dignidad became a torture camp, a training camp for the Secret Service, the DINA, complete with torture school, an arms smuggling center, a center for alternative arms production, and a place for the DINA to communicate with the outside world. This part of Colonia Dignidad is sealed off with a death strip. The underground torture chambers are well hidden, so that from the outside, it looks like a farm. Anyone who wants to be fooled could be. I was impressed by the compound. It impressed me because somehow I'm a dreamer. I'd always dreamed of setting up a center for my comrades. I wanted to give them the chance to relax and take a break from their fight. I'd been thinking about something like that. Far from being just a recuperation center for Nazis, Colonia Dignidad is also used to produce biological and chemical weapons. Chile's intelligence service needs untraceable deadly toxins. There is a short list of people that have been confirmed to have been murdered using serine, using gas. A German doctor is one of those experimenting at Colonia Dignidad. The doctor at Colonia Dignidad, Hartmut Hopp, who fled the Chilean courts to Krefeld, had a devil's workshop containing some 400 toxins. Among them were poisons to inhale, poisons deadly to the touch, poisons that kill when consumed with food. It was a wild arsenal, and nobody knows exactly who fell prey to those substances. The Cold War Nazis don't only support Pinochet, but other dictators in South America as well. The CIA gives them free reign. In 1980, the military stages a coup in Bolivia. Known as the cocaine coup, it brings the mafia under General Garcia Meza to power. Pulling the strings in the background is a German. Nazi colonel Klaus Barbie, a fascist companion, waxes lyrical. I met him when I was in Bolivia. He's a great character, very intelligent, very capable, great integrity. Klaus Barbie had won himself the name the Butcher of Lyon for his brutal treatment of members of the resistance opposing German occupation during World War II.
after the war, Barbie was hired by the American intelligence services. There were different ways that senior SS and SD officers survived the war, but they do share a common pattern. And the pattern is something that I call entrepreneurism or intelligence entrepreneurism, in which they take whatever assets they can lay their hands on and attempt to sell these uh, or to encourage intelligence services to invest in them. Klaus Barbie is a valuable agent for the Americans. He uses his knowledge of communists and the resistance to buy his own freedom. The Americans did everything they could to ensure that resistance fighters didn't come to power after the war. And Barbie was important for them because he was able to show the Americans that he knew the network of collaborators who had worked with the Germans in the occupied areas and in Vichy. It made him really valuable. With this, he had an insight into the blackmailability of the entire French political scene. The Americans initially hide the war criminals in Germany and then in South America. They understood particularly the bloody politics of certain types of intelligence. They understood colonial war. They had a mentality that was well suited for colonial war. It's because they uh, believed themselves to be when all was said and done, uber, superior, um, and thus were willing to take the lives of a great many people that they considered to be inferior for racial or ethnic reasons. Barbie ultimately becomes an intelligence service advisor in South America. In the 70s, Operation Condor begins. The American Operation Condor was a alliance, if you will, between the intelligence agencies of several South American governments that at that time were run by fascist or extreme right-wing parties with well-documented histories of disappearances, abuse, murder of prisoners, and so forth. And that those regimes found Klaus Barbie to be a very compatible agent for their operations. A total of 50,000 people from the Alliance Nations are murdered. Once again, the CIA is involved. I call it the red light, green light uh, phenomenon. Uh, the United States was publicly saying, defending human rights um, and privately telling these regimes that what they were doing was okay. Until they defeated the left, they should go ahead and do it. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger is seen as a driving force behind the CIA policy. France, Chile and Argentina summon him to answer questions about human rights violations. In 2007, Uruguay requests his extradition. It gradually becomes clear Kissinger is covering for Operation Condor even for the death squads. Among them is a well-known fascist, Stefano Della Chiaia in Bolivia, leading a troop of mercenaries. These grooms of death, as they were called, supported the cocaine mafia that staged the coup in Bolivia, and they reaped the rewards. They surged through many Latin American countries, starting counter-revolutions, killing, torturing, and turning a profit in the process.
The grooms of death are financed by the cocaine trade, a sector entwined with secret services worldwide. The drugs trade is an ideal source of money. Everything is top secret, and those involved can be blackmailed. The war against drugs is basically a means of tricking the public because the real drug trade is run by privileged individuals, people who are protected by the intelligence services, who can grow any crop they like without any risk and sell them in America, Europe, wherever. And they for an irrsinnigen price letztlich in America in Europa wo auch immer verkaufen können. Also ein unglaubliches The profit margin is astronomical and the intelligence services siphon off what they need for their operations. Alle möglichen Operationen bezahlt werden. Klaus Barbie perfected the cocaine trade in Bolivia among other things. Barbie made oppression systematic. He abolished the system of arbitrary beatings and brutality and introduced systematic torture and an organized correctional system. And that was his doom because it meant people became aware of him and then he was extradited. In Lyon in May 1987, four years after his extradition, Klaus Barbie was sentenced to lifelong imprisonment. He died in prison in 1991. Very few Nazis were ever sentenced. Paul Dickhoff, the long-serving president of the BKA, enjoyed the trust of leading politicians until his death. Although a former SS man and Nazi spy, Dickhoff was hired by the Americans even before the end of the war. At some point he saw Germany wasn't going to win, so he hung his flag in the wind and decided it was time to switch sides. His friend, Francois Genoux, another Nazi agent, helps him. They know each other from Switzerland, where they even live together. Genoux was a major banker, a convinced Nazi, and a big fan of Hitler's. And he was probably the one who saved Nazi and SS fortunes after 1945. Genoux published Goebbels' diaries and made a lot of money as a result. He uses the proceeds to finance the defense for Adolf Eichmann and Klaus Barbie. His friends were the terrorists Carlos and Wadi Haddad, who was also a KGB agent and is responsible for numerous brutal attacks. But Dickop's connections don't damage his career. On the contrary, the CIA and its head Dulles advance his career. The next time his connection to the American intelligence services contributed to him being employed in the German Interior Ministry and then leading the BKA, Germany's Federal Office of Criminal Investigation, even though he had an SS background. 
And I think, although it is just my opinion, that there was a CIA objective behind his promotion. I think they wanted to see him in such a position. Dickhoff passed on information about German politics, especially concerning Willy Brandt. In confidential meetings, the BKA president was party to top-secret intelligence regarding Brandt's Ostpolitik. It was information from a government whose policy of détente was viewed with skepticism in the US. How much did Paul Dickhoff really know? He took part in ministry meetings and was involved at a political level. But to what extent he compromised the sovereignty of West Germany in terms of what he gave away, no one can say. Dikov is a window into the highest level security and intelligence issues as viewed by the German government of that period. This is high-level elite insights into the security apparatus of a different country. In CIA files, Dikov is described as a unilateral agent, as working exclusively for one side. Was he simply a traitor? I have a problem with the word traitor in the context of Dikov because for him it was everyday life. He was committed to both sides. There was almost certainly a kind of gratitude towards the Americans as well. How badly did Dikov damage Germany? In 1972, his friend Genoux helps to hijack a Lufthansa jet. The action generates 15 million marks in ransom for Palestinian coffers, money that will be used for further terrorist activity. In 1972, Genoux also finances the Munich massacre of the Israeli Olympic team. The sporting event, which is supposed to be Germany's big prestigious moment, becomes one of the country's biggest ever catastrophes. when 11 Israeli athletes are murdered as the world looks on. Genou is close to Middle East terrorist circles, some of which worked with Mossad. It's a very, very strange structure. As head of Interpol, Dikov is supposed to fight such terrorists financed by his friend Genou. During his time in office, there's a rise in the number of attacks and hijackings. But Dikov says Interpol is powerless to stop them. You know that Article 3 of our statute prevents the organization from any direct intervention, but that should encourage other countries to be much more active in sharing their intelligence. 
So just because Interpol can't intervene, it doesn't mean other countries can't take bilateral action. Bilaterally and multilaterally. They can do whatever they want as long as they don't involve Interpol. At the same time as 15 and later 30 planes were being hijacked in a single year, the Western states decide that solving terrorist crimes is not Interpol's job. It's outrageous. Dickkopf was in contact with Genou, who he is always meeting up with. And Genou finances the people who hijack the planes. And at the same time, Interpol says, it's not our job. Did the CIA know about Dickkopf's contacts to Genou? Documents prove that they did. Dikopf himself told the CIA he had known him since the Second World War. But the open files in Washington don't seem to contain all the information the CIA gleaned from Dikopf and other Nazis. The CIA had a conscious, deliberate campaign that was based in their general counsel's office to obstruct the release of these records to the maximum extent possible, and most particularly to obstruct the release of records that dealt with uh, relationships between informants and agents and the CIA, which was the exact point of this, okay? Christopher Simpson was a member of the commission that negotiated with the CIA over the release of the Nazi files. His experiences are sobering. And one of the most important categories that fits into that description is what's called foreign government information. And that's information in which they have obtained either legally or illegally from a separate government about that government's affairs. This is why uh, the, and, and you, you, you'll see this in the Skorzeny file, you'll see it in the Dickhoff file, you'll see it in the Klaus Barbie file, that to this day, un, most people aren't familiar with this reality, but there are nevertheless continue to be withheld records in those files. This policy prevents historians and journalists from getting to the bottom of important espionage operations. CIA is a Weltdienst. The CIA is a global service with a huge budget and incredible possibilities because it also benefits from the drugs trade and it exerts influence in all kinds of countries. All over Europe it influences politics, the perception of the enemy, public opinion, it engages in psychological warfare. So if I have an organization like the CIA at my disposal, I can push a democracy in the way the Italian democracy was pushed, and in the way that certain political processes here might have been influenced. An intelligence service is not the Boy Scouts. Many intelligence service activities from the Cold War era have still not been opened to public scrutiny. This includes the operations which turned war criminals and fascists into collaborators.